1: Okay, Toby, this song I'm hearing today doesn't sound like your usual 30 seconds worth of effort, although I'm amazed what brilliance you can pull off in 30 seconds. This sounds Thank a little you, bit ma'am. more involved than that. What's What are we listening
0: to? Well, this one's an interesting one. So, uh, for anybody out there that hasn't joined Emoryland yet, you get an EP every quarter, and this is the latest Emory EP, uh, that you get when you sign up at Emoryland land hang out. Um, and it's called Palmetto, and Devin and I had this idea to write more, like, you've been saying kind of Americana, and I think you're right. I was thinking country, but it's country, Americana, and, uh, these songs mean a lot to Devin and I. We Devin's got two on this EP, I got two, and it, uh... They are lyrically—I'm I'm just going to toot our own horn. I think they're lyrically pretty—a lot of depth, and uh, it turned out amazing. Matt, to toot your horn. Oh, you please. You a, yeah. Um, you did a great job. I mean, you and Chris uh, just did a phenomenal work on all the instrumentation, the recording, everything, the mixing, all all, all the way down. We mixed it, it too, yeah. yeah. We mixed yeah.
1: it in this collaborative way that me and Josh are doing, and it's just amazing. I know. It's great. I think that we could probably—in fact— we are available to mix. If anybody wants us to mix albums, I'm ready. I'm basically ready and to, I, to to and do that. So endorsed anybody, by Toby uh, Morrell. Um, but
0: anyway, so uh, back to it. So uh, Reva can play the. If you don't mind, Riva, you can play that whole song at the end of the uh, episode. But uh, yeah, it's just it's turned out great, and the whole Emory Land experiment has just been awesome. The people that are supporting us and the way it's worked out uh, has just been phenomenal. The interaction that we get, our Discord group. Uh, being able to do this EP and the record the way we want, and there's lots more coming in the future. It's just been really fun. So we'll have I done ha- five uh, yeah.
1: EPs that Emoryland yeah. gets, but and an album which is made up of some of those. But we'll have we're on track to have done something like seventeen songs to Emeryland in one year. Basically, right. I think we'll have done seventeen songs in the first year alone, including right. You know, ten or eleven of those will be on the album. The others are just bonus, and we're set to. Hit and we also did a bunch of Valentine songs and other stuff. So I think next year we're going to be producing, you know, well over twenty songs. I mean, it, right. in, in different capacities, and of course we'll put out yep. public albums at the rate of one per year, which is higher than other people. But I believe we're going to be able to be on a, a whole new level of doing experimental and additional EPs and stuff like that, just in Emeryland. So. Um, so far, we're not through the first year of this experiment, but it's going very, very well. The subscriptions are staying, and people are really enjoying it, and we're going to continue to improve it. So very good. A lot better than a classical crowd, crowdfund, I would say, so far for the Emory yeah. project. project. Um, yeah, this I, song also I, has yeah. the girl vocal on it. It has a female vocal that's a guest, so that's notable too.
0: Yep, yeah, and, and she is a phenomenal singer and musician, her and her husband. Uh, we, we toured with Brett. Brett... Is kind of a jack of all trades, but he played drums for us on a tour with Matt and Toby. Just great people. They have a band called Handsome and Gretel, and Gretel is the lady that sang on this song. And I mean, you just hear it's just it. I just couldn't believe it when I first heard her singing the words I wrote. It, I promise you, it almost felt like I should. I thought I was going to start crying, <laughs> and I thought I should. And it just felt uh, it was just such a it was a great moment where like I wrote lyrics and was trying to convey a message about. The, the this song is, the, the, those lyrics I wrote for a female lead, and that, this song is about a father and a daughter, and they're singing together, and this is her part, and Gretel just de- destroys it. It's amazing. It's it's so beautiful. I, I couldn't have been
1: more happy about how good she did. So yeah, check them out too, but yeah, that's this song's called Where Are You Going? Very good. Okay. Well, today's show, I got to tell y'all, is sponsored by Hymns. So Hymns is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Get your first month for free at dot com slash badchristian. Today's show is also sponsored by Hubble. If you want daily contacts at a price you can afford, visit hubblecontacts.com to get two weeks of daily lenses shipped to your door for just $1. Be sure to select our show in the post-checkout survey. Okay, and then the last thing I have to say is anybody who is in the BC Club, which if you're not, just go ahead and knock that out first, and then you too will have access to the early bird tickets for the Bad Christian Conference, which is in Kansas City on June 5th, 6th, and 7th. And so a lot of people at the VC Club are already going before we announce the speakers and the exact format and the exact details. And I'm still going to save some of that information for next week. And I believe next week we may have some stuff to say and some uh early bird tickets on sale for the general public, but for this week, just the BC Club. So if you join the BC Club, I don't know, what does it cost you, $7 a month, something like a coffee, and uh, you would already save immediately $50 off your BC Con ticket and have it. So probably a good deal. Um, That's all I got. You ready to roll on farther into the episode? Yeah, I got some stuff to talk about.
0: (laughs) All right. Welcome. Welcome, welcome to the Bad Christian Podcast. You know what this podcast is about It's just delivering great content.
1: Content. Matt, I'm Matt, allergic remember, to that word content.
0: Do you Do you remember when content <laughs> started being thrown around? It, it was, just, yeah. it's, it, you know, just like it, it, the same thing is. It, you know, there's always these hype words or whatever. You know, yeah. like un, unpack. They do that in church yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. But I remember uh, content. Here's your content. And content, you know, just covers everything. That way, you don't have to say making a funny video. You get to say content, which makes it,
1: it classes it up a little bit. You know, you mean? You know, people you know what making I mean? cat videos got to start saying, "Well, I produce content. They're My content's really me. important to me." But yeah. it's
0: just them shaking their butt in a thong. But it's the, it is content.
1: <laughs> they're right. Well, it's uh, I don't like it. I always thought when people start talking about uh, art as content, then you've downgraded it. So I've always had a problem with that. That's why I say when I'm allergic to it is like there's people in bands and they're trying to create music and art ostensibly or at least that seems like what they're trying to do but then yep. they start referring to everything as content and i go Ugh, what kind of little business strategy do you got there pal right like what are you talking about That it, it 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 makes me that they blur together all the content and it devalues the art i think and or it, yep. it implies that that it's just some even the song or the or the video or whatever it is is a piece of content in some business funnel and that I just always rubs me the wrong way, but I think more of the way to look at it is: every your content itself should be art, or else why are you making it? I don't really know. I don't right. know. I don't know what those definitions are, and I know everybody uses it in weird ways. But that content buzzword always drives me crazy. But well, we're you your home it, for irreverent Christian content. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it'd be hard to say that irreverent Christian art. Oh, people don't like that one either, right? You I know know what I mean? Even I feel like I, I, know people will make fun of me for the rest of my life. I feel like this podcast is art. I feel like we're trying to capture uh, <laughs> something. Case, I really then. do. So you can make me fun. You can make fun of me. But speaking of content, so uh, no, defend
1: it as art. Real quick, give me, give me, tell me why this. podcast, okay. how is it art? Okay, I
0: believe that art captures – you have to kind of give something up. and yet, For example, you have to give up or allow yourself to be vulnerable to criticism and to have to go against the norm because to create real art, it cannot just be a copy of something Mm -hmm. else. When people do that, that's when things get diluted and really cheap, and it doesn't become artistic. It becomes uh, a a piece of content or it's a thing to sell, a product. A product, right, a product. Uh, right. Uh, Picasso can paint this picture, but Walmart can do a print of it and sell it in a cheap frame, and then you know that thing isn't real, and it, it just devalues the specialness of it, the artistic value. You, you're looking at it more to make your wall look good, not for the thing that the, it was created to to be or to yeah, express. It
1: can be a product. Music yes. can be a product. A podcast can be a product. It can be monetized, but the, when right. the people aim directly at making the products, that is never going to get you good. Right. That's not. I put it this way. Aiming at making a good product is not a good way to make a good product. Aiming right. at something much higher, of much higher value, and then succeeding, well, of course, you could turn into a product. And that totally. should be true even when you're trying to game social media, like, oh, I've got to just do all the social media posting to help my whatever. It's not that. Even that should be real, or you should seek higher goals or something poetic about what you do, you know? And, right. and, you know Everybody... I think you should be thinking of everything as an art form, from parenting to your job or everything. You sh- it's for you to define what you're doing as an art form. I mean, I don't right. claim being a high artist exactly. Well, that, how, how about even this?
0: It, if you Just take this into consideration. Think about the lasting forms of art when you think about a piece of art, a painting, when you think about songs, uh, even classical songs. They last the The test of time, and part of the reason why is because most of the people that made those things never even made that much money off of it. It wasn't even to get rich yep. or anything. If it, if if Picasso or Bach was around today, they'd probably be ruined by Instagram monetization strategy, and, and Facebook. Right. And yeah, yeah, I mean, seriously, it they, you would have to immediately start taking that in consideration. That's why uh, I, part of the reasons why I think this podcast is awesome is we are supported by we do people will say, well, you do ads and you have the BC Club. The only way we're able to do this is support of fans and we do the ads because yes that helps pay the bills. So maybe I'm even being hypocritical here, but the point of this podcast if anybody hasn't realized, we we ain't making that much money. <laughs> we yeah. hadn't gotten that rich and we're able to kind of say whatever we want in the face of everything we want. I worked when we started this podcast, I worked at a mega church and I still uh Said what I wanted to say because I knew I had to. Mm-hmm. I did, and eventually I knew. Wait a minute, I have to leave the mega church because what their mission is and my mission ain't, ain't the same. And so I think the value here is I'm not against artists getting paid. In fact, I mean I think artists should get paid more. I think it's that valuable. The problem is if your goal is to get paid, that's when it starts yeah. getting becoming the product. And that's what I think a lot of people. It, you know, you want to make a living. There's a difference in making a living. Off uh, the thing that you're passionate about or, or, or highly skilled at, and that being your only oh, goal no that's why I, you know MLM schemes and uh, a bunch of this, uh, quick sales stuff online is always it feels so shitty because it is it, there isn't anything real there it's not uh, authentic or meaningful work. it really is truly about the dollar, which a dollar has no intrinsic value. It's just what people say it is. I, I know we all need money. I know we have to have it to live, but the problem with uh, if your goal is to make a lot of money, it will always leave you empty. If your goal is to have a meaningful relationship and a meaningful life and a meaningful career or work, then it will be more fulfilling regardless of how much money you make, and that is the truth. In fact, so much so that the stats show that after uh, $80,000, I think it's eighty dollars to $120,000 in most regular cities, not major cities, uh, you're... Happiness does not go up. We're having Scott Galloway on here today, and he talks a little bit about that. Your happiness will not go up after making $120,000. Mm-hmm. You don't get any happier the more money you make. The, the thing that actually does work in lots of situations is just that you feel safe that you're not going to lose something. If, yeah. if, if your wife gets cancer, you're not, you're not afraid the house is going in her, you're going to lose her and all that stuff. That's, that's the big thing. But In fact, Scott Galloway, who's coming on, he says, uh, that one of the studies show, do you know that uh, people who win the lottery – 1 year after winning the lottery are not happier than they were before they won the lottery. And you really? know what's really yeah, and you know what's really interesting? People who have catastrophic uh, accidents like and become maybe paraplegic
1: mm-hmm. are
0: 1 yeah. 1 year later aren't aren't less happy. Right. They're about the same that. amount of happiness as yep. they were before, which is is wild. It just shows you the human spirit. Like you lost everything and maybe it puts some things in perspective that you didn't know. I mean, it's it's really crazy. I, that brain in all of our heads is so Wild. All right, you've heard me talk about this before, so what are you waiting on? Seriously, dudes. 66% of men start to lose their hair by 35. Age 35. You're a and You're a kid. I can remember 35 like it was 20 years ago. Once you've noticed thinning hair, though, it can be too late. And is that, I mean, seriously, is your hairline slowly starting to move backwards? Any bald spots yet? The best way to prevent more hair loss is to do something about it while you still have some. Guys, you don't have to turn to those weird solutions or do nothing. Seriously, 4 is a one stop shop for hair loss, skincare, sexual wellness for men. So, it's time to write a new chapter, one in which you have hair. There's no snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. This is prescription solutions backed by science. No more awkward in-person doctor's visits or long pharmacy lines. 4HEMS connects you to real doctors online, which could save you hours. Completely confidential and discreet. And all you got to do is answer a few questions. A doctor will review and... If they determine it's right for you, they can prescribe you medication to treat hair loss that is shipped directly to your door. So right now, our listeners can get started with their first month free. Go to 4hymns.com slash badchristian. That's 4hymns.com slash badchristian. Prescription requires an online consultation with a physician who will determine if a prescription is appropriate, offer is valid only if prescribed, three-month minimum subscription, and additional restrictions apply. See website for full details and important safety information. Remember, that's 4 com slash christian. So I've been doing this uh, fasting, and it's been clearing up my head and giving me some more energy. I've been doing a 20-hour fast this week with you and with Devin. Uh, we're doing the BC 69. If you don't know about the BC 69, join the BC club and all that stuff. And there's just so many subgroups and people it, it, it but we're trying to improve our life mentally and physically. And I, I say mentally first. I think this is, that's a big one. Well, this fast has been like giving me more energy. It's crazy. I don't eat. Uh, we're doing a 20, 20 hour fast and I only eat for four hours a day. And in the mornings, my workouts have been longer and my brain has been more like thoughtful and creative and all this stuff. So I'm, I was on this long walk, run, Uh, This morning And I started thinking about Actually, this was yesterday I I can even remember That I was wrong about that Uh, Normally, (laughs) I wouldn't wouldn't even know Uh, And I started thinking I, I was I was uh, realizing with TikTok, uh, you know, uh, whenever I'm on TikTok or something, I notice that sometimes I get way more like Christian stuff. It'll be those uh, Christians against atheists or whatever, and I almost have to like uh, pause longer on the girls dancing in uh, short shorts or the terrible other videos just so the algorithm won't make me watch that. Uh Right? The algorithm knows the TikTok algorithm, same as Facebook, same as uh, you know Instagram, all of them. They see what I linger on, or what, like, because I'm certain there's times where I'll stop, listen to somebody just out of anger about what they're saying about the Bible or how they're using it or what they're doing. And so the TikTok algorithm goes, Oh, this is what he's interested in. We'll, we'll give him more of this. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what, that's what the, algorithm, the algorithms do not care about you. What they care about is uh, hopefully eventually they're going to sell you something or get you something that you want so they can, you know, do the ad or whatever it might be. So I realized it, it's funny just from TikTok and then if you go on Instagram and then of course on Facebook uh I was thinking about how much content there is about God and then that made me mm-hmm. come to this conclusion and a lot of people might be frustrated by this but just hear us out hear me out I think that uh churches are just content creators and they have been the entire time and and we didn't even know uh Churches, and I, so I did some research. I went on and found some uh, Pew, uh, the Pew, uh, what is it called? Pew Forum, uh, some of the Pew research. And um, I wanted. I, I just typed in on Google. I was like, what? How many sermons are online? I just wanted to know. And I couldn't even find it. And I think it's un, an unbelievable amount, but there was one test on, on the Pew research site, the Digital Pulpit, a nationwide analysis of online sermons. And so here is they found... A database between April seventh, they created a database between April seventh and June first of 2019, and they found 49,719 sermons shared by 6,431 U.S. religious congregations, nearly all of which were Christian churches, right? And that so that period included some of Lent, Easter Sunday, and several and several weeks following Easter. So. Just during that time span, from April 7th to June 1st, they found basically 50,000 sermons, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. in the U.S., the U.S. Um, That is a phenomenal amount of sermons, and and we're talking about sermons. Uh, I mean, uh, the Internet's full of stuff, but that uh, is—I couldn't believe—and that's just this study— that's from 6,431 churches. This is not all the churches that are in America. This isn't even that long of a time. So imagine if you expanded it to all churches that could put content on their website or on YouTube.
1: Or will whatever, in the social media
0: <laughs> Or will in the future. And, uh, and it, started, it made me start thinking, wait a minute, I'm just noticing this now because we have the internet. But when I was growing up, the church, that's definitely what they were. They were still content creators, and they were basically using an algorithm to get me To come back, they Mm -hmm. they knew what I wanted, and it must have worked. When the pastor preached about hell, more people came the next week. Or when the pastor preached about love, more people came the next week, Mm -hmm. right? And so the pastor is analyzing and reading the data. uh, Even in you know when I was in elementary school in the early eighties or whatever, and understanding. Wait a minute, if we can, uh, if we say this, this, and this, this keeps this amount of people here. Potentially, could even grow, or at the very least. This content uh, keeps me in charge of these people, it, it, or maybe I shouldn't say that.
1: It ke- helps me to influence
0: these people. Influence the is the
1: right word. Influence and persuasion right? are the word that I think that's important to flag. Uh, I even see books—I mean, it's weird because you'll see Christian books that talk about the use of—I've I, I, looked at them on Amazon. There's a lot of Christian books that talk about narrative control, persuasion, and influence. And they talk about it in the same terms that Steve Bannon would, essentially. Oh wow! Do you know what I mean? Like, like Steve yeah. Bannon, for instance, would be like the ultimate uh, church guy. If he, you know, that's who you would want, no matter what. Oh, if yeah, you wanted your church to succeed, you just get Steve Bannon and let him do persuasion and narrative control and all that and spin. And so, I think both content and that are things that the church is specialized in forever. And I, I learned that at Mars Hill. Uh, and I keep trying to tell people this. I don't think people still get it yet, or it doesn't matter. Um, it's a, it's a kind of an uncomfortable truth. But being near that collapse, it, it became very aware. At a lot of the behavior that happens online today with... Narrative control and spin and activism and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's all it was. Like Mark was an expert at it. Mars Hill had all that stuff dialed. They were just the, the greatest at it, and it worked super well. And then we saw it fall apart. And then we've seen it unfold in culture, and every activist group start to act like that too. And so it, give, it gives me a little funniness to think about it that way, that it's like both algorithmic content creation and narrative control, the things that are dominating our society now – are actually things that the church has been dominating silently forever. And they're na- And so we always think right. of the church as, oh, they're just silly, that old carpet in the 80s room, and the worship music's 10 years behind, the silly little church. They're just, they just you know, they're behind on culture. No, they're way ahead. Right. They're way ahead. You don't get it. Way ahead. They're, they're, what, they're the model that the other people are copying now that is the timeless, evolved model of control. That they specialize in, and you know, right. That's just that's just kind of a well a, I a zoomed to zoom out analysis. I'm not accusing a certain church or type or whatever. All right, I'm not saying.
0: Well, you know. well, uh, what what I the bigger picture here is? I, I was just thinking all the content that has been created that wasn't on the internet pre internet time that influence. Affected my entire life, and many of the people, uh, if not most of the people who call themselves a Christian or even us, they're spiritual or whatever. And that influence, I didn't even realize. For example, uh, this study, it kept on going. Uh, there are certain terms that are that uh, some just dis- distinctively evangelical terms include variations of the phrases of the phrases, uh, lose salvation, Mm -hmm. which is used in 8% of all sermons. 8% of all those sermons. uh, and uh, Trespass and sin was used 9%. Home and heaven was used 8%. Now, here's one that really got me, and it made me realize the serious influence and uh, how—let me say the data first. Uh, Pastors at churches with 200 or fewer members cited specific books from the Old Testament— and 6% more of their sermons, on average, than those at churches with more than 200 members. And I was like, huh, why is that valuable? What does that really matter? I I guess the small churches use the Old Testament more, but the Old Testament is way more harsh, way more brutal, uh, way more offensive to, let's say, same-sex marriage, homosexuality uh, on on the sin side. Mm -hmm. And those small churches with those small groups of people in the hills of Greer, South Carolina, where I grew up, I was hearing the Old Testament preached because it was in relation to sinners and going to hell and sin. I bet the yours was higher
1: than 6% of the oh, <laughs> right.
0: increase, though. So,
1: so what I'm
0: saying is they, they got me early, and they used the content to influence me to keep me in this bubble so I wouldn't find out about other stuff. So much so, the same Christians that I grew up with told me to stay away from evolution. Evolution is bad. They're going to teach it in schools. I can remember hearing sermons about it. I can remember hearing it on TV from family members, and when we go to different Christian events and stuff like that, uh, that evolution is going to ruin it. They're trying to take away our God. They're trying to do all this stuff. Not, not once was I told to be uh, thoughtful about the data or the information, or to just learn. Right? It was only presented as evil.
1: So that's the, yeah, the, all,
0: yeah. All the information that I was given, the content, the now. I mean, we might even be getting in here to. Propaganda language, but the all of this was unbelievably influential. And now, I think I'm seeing it even within social media because now with the prevalence, you know, the the rise of the internet, we are talking about algorithms and how data is is uh, put together, how we are receiving uh, our information, and what you actually are going for. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Netflix knows. Wait a minute, that episode just ended. We're gonna play the next one. Yes, it Le- seems so simple, but it's keeping you there,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely, keeping you there is exactly what the algorithm does. An algorithm isn't some fancy computer thing. Algorithms like set of rules, basically. If this and that, it's pretty. You could build algorithms yourself of like, you know, just how to you operate in your kitchen. You could write one and then follow it. So it's not nothing magical about that. But the what what I think is striking about what you say, especially with some of that language and the rhetoric, is uh. Like eternal hell and lose salvation and cleaving, and all these very harsh things are are at super high ratios in in these churches, especially like right. that, and that is the outrage thing it is it's the scariest base level human stuff you talk about sex, sexuality, what the gays are doing, uh going to hell, like all the stuff that engages your i don't know the your limbic system and your all that like the lower part I'm not saying. They're lower people, but same as Facebook it just it doesn't care if you like the Christian content or hate it. it just cares that you consume it and return right and, and as such that's what it, what churches you know the the data shows that that is what they do I'm not accusing a person or denomination or anything, but the data supports that that very well I mean and right. influencers and persuaders always know to speak to the base level human emotions and, to in order to manipulate them to whatever where, your desires are maybe the desire is. Get everybody to heaven, though. So maybe it's good to do all that, I well, guess. Well,
0: here's why it's really polarizing, though, and this is why Facebook and church are extremely polarizing, and we might be more polarized than we've ever been in our entire history. It's because you keep getting the same information. So I I am told over and over, this is what I want by Facebook. Or, you know, it, it, it thinks that I like uh, cheese, so it starts sending me more cheese ads and more cheese things and all this stuff about cheese. So I, I'm constantly now in a smaller and smaller room an echo chamber, if you will, about the things that I that Facebook knows I like, and it's just reinforcing that. The same way mm-hmm. as church is reinforcing the same thing. So I now am starting to think, uh, like for example, if I like politics and I happen to sit on a Donald Trump video for a while and maybe I'm even a Donald Trump supporter, well, I'm going to get unbelievable amounts of Donald Trump information sent my way, mm-hmm. so much so that it's going to influence me to be more pro-Trump, which will influence me to be farther away from anybody with other ideas besides being pro-Trump, and then we're going to be angry at each other. Yep, We're going to be mad because all I've been hearing for weeks, months, years is about Trump, and now you're trying to tell me about this Bernie Sanders guy? Get the hell out of here. The, the video I just saw about Bernie Sanders is bad. He's a, bad, he's a socialist bad guy. So, you're kind of, you know, you're you're being set up. So, the same way as the church set me up to go, wait, evolution science, bad. Right. Wait a minute. You know what? what, You know what you need is a loving God. That's all you need that loving God. So, come back here because, you know, life is hard and you get that syrupy sermon and it's going to be tough. And instead of actually being. Uh, in control of some of my thoughts, I'm being influenced, and I didn't even realize it. I, yep. I, I mean, like you said, the churches might be doing it for the right reasons. They want people to go to heaven. They want people to be healthier and all this stuff. But it's still an influence that you might not even realize is happening to you.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think it's you know not great uh, it, mainly because there's a there's a it's not transparent what the goals are and how and because the data s- shows many different things about what churches are optimized for that is not spiritual growth. That's just not. It, you know, I analyze things by what, by behavior, and the behavior of the church and the data does not support that spiritual growth is what they're optimized for. They're measured by numbers. They count numbers. They count economic growth. They count. It's very clear and it's unarguable what they measure. Now, if they use that as a heuristic proxy to measure spiritual growth, well, they've got some huge problems in their measurement. And what you know, they need a lot of economists to help them understand data, but they don't understand it. If right. that's the case, but the. The thing that's weird about it is you, with these algorithms, don't really have a chance. They are influencing you to feel things and have opinions that you would not have come to on your own if you sought the information. And the parallel there that freaks me big time out is, likewise, when you're in church, the time of the heaviest influence and persuasion, we all know what it is. It's when you're a kid, which also, you're, you're a sitting duck. Okay, so that I find that to to be crazy, especially the the most damning thing about the frame we're analyzing it from right now is that when you talk about evolution that way, it really starts to stack up like psychological projection. That the first thing that might threaten anything that you do, which you don't even ever allow curiosity or questioning for, you have to attack it by claiming it is a narrative control thing with an agenda that's trying to to trick you that you could never handle or listen to or sort totally. out. Totally. Which means right. they know that's what they are doing. That's how they know to think that about the the evolutionist agenda. You know what I mean? And and that hurts me a little bit on a personal level because I remember being a kid in the 80s. In South Carolina, with a very strong impulse to argue pro evolution to all my schoolmates, I did that when I was a young kid, and it was horrible. Really? Yes. I mean, I, I, that was oh, no. that's that's who I was when I was a kid. You know, I mean, I would argue evolution as a ten-year-old. I thought. I mean, it didn't. I mean, in Greer, South Carolina. Yes, and 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 it was terrible. 80s, and I'm just talking about it, I'm just talking about at school, not at church or anything. But just right. at school, and it was just like, you know, I I got crushed for that in a way that I stopped doing that, and now oh, I think I, I had to. I, mean, start I bet some adults now, heard but, that and thought, I bet yeah, some
0: adults for sure really helped it hurt to shut that down.
1: Oh yeah, I mean that's what I'm saying. It was a very, it was, it was, it was just that one stupid. It was just me that was bad. I mean, from all adults, all religious people, all kids, they all thought I was doing a. Like I couldn't believe it because I was thinking it's fascinating or interesting or well, you know. I, I I'm not saying I did it well or understood it that well or anything, but I, right. I just found those that to be I was interested in the creation story and the evolution. I thought it was all very interesting things, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was just crushed for it. I don't know another way to say it, but it was not welcome in, in in any way. And I I stopped, you know. And then eventually I just went the other way, you know. I just stopped yeah. and uh, you know just I mean w- went just started just believing more in creation, and that was that. Uh, well, I mean, in a, a connected
0: way. I mean, I really was told it was evil and wrong and satanic. Like I was told it was satanic. Like the devil was using evolution. Mm-hmm. And we're, I'm just using this one thing. It was lots of things. Devil was. I mean, the church I grew up in. You weren't allowed to go see movies in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Everybody had TVs, but you could not go to the movies. We had to sneak in to go see movies. And um, all that was told taught, taught to me. As Satan. So when, when I was growing up, I thought science was satanic. I thought film industry satanic. I thought uh, lots of industries, uh, anything outside of the scope of what you know, was being said in the pulpit and in our church on Sundays was pretty dangerous. Language if you weren't careful, would send you to hell. All this stuff could send you know be super detrimental. Mine's kind of even on the extreme end. Now, just even roll that back a little bit. Still, I mean, do you know uh, the the per, the percentage? Uh, I had it here somewhere. I'll probably better find it this second. That church uh, people that attend church, I think it's like sixty nine percent of them vote and you don't think they're influenced to vote for a certain candidate by their church, even if the church isn't directly preaching about the, a, a certain candidate, the the influence is—you you can't deny it. Well, you, influence you'd have a it, you know? hard time
1: finding churches that had 50-50 voting <laughs> by party right. lines. I mean, you find churches right. where they're all one way or the other. It's all you'd find. But at least 75-25. I, I bet that's a good stat. Somebody should try to look at that. Find me the churches where it's like the voting between— Left and right is about 50-50. What church would that make, describe? Name name one.
0: Yeah, I, I think none.
1: Now, I if mean, you I, have eight uh, people that vote Democrat in your church, you probably claim that as, we have everything at our church, <laughs> but I don't think you do. You just have right. the one or the other, you know, mostly. It's, I mean, it, they claim that they don't, hey, we don't preach politics here. Well, I mean, right. that's implicit, but that's why, yeah. <laughs> I think the way it goes. Yeah, here it is. I found it. So,
0: uh... <clears throat> In Spain, 83% of actively religious people uh, report that they always vote in national elections compared with 62% of inactives and 53% of unaffiliated. In the U.S., is 69%, actually. Of, uh, I told you this fasting is working. And then, uh, so in the U.S., 69% of the actively religious say they always vote compared with 59% of inactives and 48%, which is another problem that I see. People long for community. But the church influences you and pushes you out of it, so that you're out there, and so maybe you you don't you you go well. Why aren't the unaffiliated or the inactives voting as much? That's on them. But it is because the connection actually really does matter. You being connected to a a body of people is important. But that mm-hmm. it, but when it's used to influence you on, even if you don't realize it, it's a little subversive under the radar that you are. Um, being influenced to vote a certain way or to do a certain thing—I mean, right—all—all all of that. I—I I mean, there's there's tons of evidence for good things about church. I, I can I can I'm sure I can go online right now and find a, the stats about being happier. It, you know, people who are spiritual or right. uh, believe in God are happier than other people. Pe- you know, people that are married are happier. We're going to talk to Scott here in a minute about that, but the problem I see is. The content that is being created, what I see now is the thing that we thought the church was always behind. They were crafting and figuring out their content for a long time. Now that the internet has boomed, you're going to see more and more of that, and the online church and how that is working and, and the ties that you pay. Think about this. How how frustrated do you get when you hear, oh, well, i got to pay another subscription fee somewhere, Disney Plus, or man, you know, I, I like it and I love Disney. I love Star Wars and all that stuff, but I, I, that subscription fee, there's a whole other subscription. I got a subscription for this and this and this. Well, you pay ten percent of your income to a church's content. Ten <laughs> percent of your income
1: yeah. for its right? subscription you, of its content. Th- yeah,
0: yeah. They say please pay your ten percent for this content. Mm-hmm. So imagine, why not give one uh, percent to your church and then nine percent to all this other other things? Hey, hey give 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 the bad Christian some, but give it somewhere where there's real ideas where you are challenged with a little. Where you variety. have to maybe, yeah, maybe a little maybe variety
1: you, in your subscription content. Uh, somebody that's craving some
0: art or making you a little uncomfortable about something. <laughs> Figure out why it makes you uncomfortable. Don't why why you know. What do you, Where is your money going? I, I, I mean. I think sixty fifty to sixty percent of your tithes go to salary, yeah, they to do. people at the church, I which the I know they earn their money, and I am not, I am not criticizing them, but you have to be aware of where your money is sent, how it's being spent, and if you are giving ten
1: percent to the church's content, well, just give five percent and then give five percent to bad Christian. Well, that's on a, if you if you <laughs> just analyze it from an economic level without making any judgments or anything else, you can see that that is the trade off. You are basically paying ten percent right. of your income for content that you're interested in. Yeah. It's not a lot of variety, but hey, that's up that's up to you. And some other services that are that are add-ons to that like community. So that right. is why we have it. We have we have the potential of spiritual growth, uh potential I would say. Uh we have content and we have community. Now the community argument for church actually is, doesn't move me anymore. I used to hang on to church stuff and say that community was the most important thing and that's why we need it. And now I realize Community's is the most important thing, and we need it. We better get to work on that, right? Because of what the other part of the content and stuff it doesn't it doesn't have to be attached to that. I think churches and evangelicalism, and in the American consumer capitalistic way, specifically, has really always been in the content creation walled garden uh, type of game that, that 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 Apple and Google and, and the other people are in. That Disney Plus is in. It's it's. Is making content, developing loyalty, uh, trying to be proprietary in a way that you only get stuff through them, including vertically stuff like uh, not only the content but the community, and they don't have to right. be coupled. You could uncouple the community that everybody agrees we need. That of course that's the most important thing in the world. Why wouldn't you get it? Why wouldn't you customize it a little better than that? I mean, why you know you, you pay. It's not that crazy that you pay for four, six streaming services of all that content, billions of dollars of the top minds and creators and artists. I mean, pretty good deal, relatively speaking. (laughs) Yeah. And now they're they're just kind of copying the church's model, you know, in a way.
0: All right, folks, it's the start of the new decade, and what better time to look around and see how much things have changed. And I'm talking about seriously, because <laughs> you need to be able to see. I think a lot of y'all know this. If you ever see me wear my glasses, uh, I o- oftentimes just wear contacts, and I ha- I'm i in desperate need. If I don't have contacts or glasses, I, c- I literally couldn't even drive. And that's why I'm so happy that we get to work with Hubble, because they make buying contacts easier and better and just Honestly, I just like it. it's just it's just amazing. If uh if you're like most people and you're hoping to do things a little bit differently in 220, why are you still spending a fortune on contact lenses when you can get Hubble? Seriously, have you ever rationed or reused your lenses over weeks to save money? Yes, I have. For a lots of times, <laughs> most lenses are sold at a huge markup, and people don't bat an eye. They feel forced to overpay. Seriously, you do, and that's all over now, thanks to Hubble. Seriously, they're high quality at an affordable price, and it starts with a two week supply. Uh, you can start with a two week supply of daily lenses for just one dollar. Seriously. It's easy to sign up, no stress or hassle to start a subscription. A month's worth of daily lenses delivered straight to your door. It's eye care on autopilot. The attention to detail from look and feel of the product, packaging, and customer service. Seriously. If you want daily contacts at a price you can afford, visit hubblecontacts.com. You'll get two weeks of daily lenses shipped straight to your door for just $1. That's 30 contacts for just $1. What are you waiting for? Make 2020 the year you start seeing 2020 and stop overpaying for contacts. Start seeing the savings when you sign up at hubblecontacts.com. That's hubblecontacts.com. And don't forget to select our show in the post-checkout survey. Thanks.
2: Scott, can you hear us? Yeah, I can, although I was enjoying being a fly on the wall. Oh, I didn't, I
1: didn't even see you when you joined. <laughs> Whatever John. that was. Well, then you can help us from right there. We'll just engage here and move on if you don't mind. We were saying, we were making the claim that when it comes to content uh, creation and monetizing outrage or the base level human things and being very proprietary – like those big tech companies do, that the church has been the was the originator of that. People always think of the church as behind, but they've kind of always been ahead in content creation, rhetoric, narrative control, manipulation. Do uh, so you know what I mean? The content is just sermons, and there's a, a lot of customer loyalty. People pay ten percent for it, and that model is now leaked out
2: more so into business. My, this escalated quickly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so. I can speak to what you described, what you just described is social media and that is social media like a, the comfort I think of a super being is addictive, right? Mm -hmm. That, that, that love, that safety. I think you find, you guys are going to forget more about this than I'm ever going to know from believing in a, in a, in a being and a sense of community and all that good stuff. Social media, when you when you open Twitter, you do register a DOPA hit and it's not seeing if someone likes something, but it's, it's the anticipation similar to when the wheels almost come up or stop spinning on a slot machine. So it is, it is physically addictive and they have, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars with, with psychologists and biologists and evolutionary anthropologists to make their products addictive, but addiction in itself isn't necessarily bad. You know, caffeine is addictive and it doesn't kill you. Nicotine is addictive, but it doesn't kill you. The shit that gives you cancer Am I allowed to say shit on this show? I have no idea. Okay, so. Hell yeah. There you go. Uh, The stuff that gives you cancer from social media is, uh, the tobacco of social media is the underlying business model, Our algorithms that want to serve up as many ads as possible. And unfortunately, as a species, we like controversy. We like rage. And if someone says, oh, I love your podcast, and you guys are thoughtful, and you have good hair, and I like that Atlanta Braves hat or whatever that is, or I love Clemson, (laughs) that feels good. But if someone weighs in and says, You guys are uninformed, and and you only have that drum set to try and pretend you're younger than you are. Like, if someone pisses you off, that rage engages you to a much greater extent than anything else. And as a species, we're tribal, and the algorithms therefore love—they're like Tyrannosaurus rexes—they're attracted towards movement and violence. Mm -hmm. And when someone posts content on anti-vax, Holocaust denial, or climate change. It it immediately draws rage, a lot of engagement, a lot of enragement, and more Chobani So you have totally (laughs) non-sentient, non-biased algorithms that are basically trained to foment rage. And then you insert organic intelligence in the form of foreign intelligence, foreign intelligence wings of foreign governments that see opportunity for division with the U.S. And I realize I sound paranoid right now, but just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean I'm wrong. But for the price of an F-15 the Russian government can hire 5,000 very sophisticated uh, trollers out of an Albanian troll farm, teach them how to engage with people, slightly enrage them, pit them against each other, and then the algorithms take it from there. Or the spark was always there. These problems are of our own making, but they're especially adept at pouring fuel on it and getting us to hate each other. Now, your notion around the Catholic church or the church or religion is always they're the original gangsters here, that's really illuminating for me because I've always thought I've always known it in the context of the original gangsters and luxury are, are the is the church. That's the best brand in the world. What do you have? You have the best, the best theater retail, you go to a place that has the most beautiful artisanship, things that feel godlike, you're in the presence of God, you have beautifully dressed employees, you have music, you have ambience, you have smells, and you think this is where God lives. And instead of buying an iPhone at a ridiculous margin. In this temple of consumerism called an Apple store, you're in the original theater flagship retail, and that is a church, a mosque, or a temple. And the reason why I think we're so drawn to luxury items is typically speaking, the slope on the back of a 9-11 or the mesh on a Bottega Veneta bag makes us feel, one, it's more attractive to the other sex, which we'll always pay ridiculous margins for. But even maybe more importantly, it makes us feel closer to God because part of our DNA is the feeling that if we're around real beauty, the kind of beauty that steals you, you are in the presence of God because the only time, the only place for thousands of years we've been able to experience that type of beauty have been in places of worship. Probably a longer answer than you wanted. No, <laughs> no, no, it's great. No, that's I, terrific.
0: Well, oh, yeah, what I was going to say to add on to that, though, I think it, the original gangster, uh, side that we're taking is it is that influence. it's the same idea i think the church in a way created an enemy well there's the the bad guys the sinners there's satan so you got the big satan the big guy first and then underneath that becomes the influence that they're able to uh just flow out and delve out dish out like uh how in some ways how to vote obviously. What about, like for me, before you came on, I was talking about when I was a little kid, the church told me, stay away from evolution. It is satanic. It is evil. That led to science is evil. Those scientists, they don't care. They, they're godless. They're, so it really, from a very early age, which is the most dangerous, we're talking about that as well, children are, are we can be influenced so much so, especially by people that we trust, that I grew up thinking science, danger, no good, maybe unintelligent. The, the smart people were the people behind the pulpit telling me what was good and what wasn't, and so or that so, it's binary.
2: That, there, there's no right, room for the middle. Right,
0: know? right, one hundred percent. I mean, the, the, when, from an early age until I mean, until I got out of college, I thought only in terms of homosexuality as a sin. Yeah, that's all that's all I was ever. And what changed by your mind? Like me. what?
2: What was part of your evolution? And let me be let me be clear. When I was a, in the fraternity at UCLA in the eighties. We thought that homosexuality—we didn't think it was a sin as much as it was as it was like a perversion that we just couldn't imagine right. it. That we just couldn't. We didn't know. We th- we didn't know any gays. Although it ended up, we knew a lot of them, and some of them right. were our roommates <laughs> and our friends, and realized that they're like us, and you know, love their kids and love their families and want to be successful and are patriotic just like us. But and I, I don't want to say I had an awakening, but I just gradually over time became less homophobic by just sheer exposure. To uh, finding out all my when I came out of college, literally five of my closest friends not only came out of the closet, but like blew the hinges off the damn door. And I'm like, well, why on earth would we not embrace right. and love them the same way we love? anyone? where did your awakening or how did you change? How did that come about?
0: Well, once again, and this is probably one of the reasons why I was thinking of churches as the content, that, that so the narrative was told to me as truth, right? right. And so then uh, being around finding out the same ways, people I was going to school with were gay, and I was like, "Oh, and why?" And I' just trying to figure out why. Why are they the enemy, and why are they evil? And and a real breakthrough, which sounds so silly. I was at the dentist office, and <laughs> there was an older man sitting across from me. Is is probably late sixties? And he, we just struck up a conversation, and he was very effeminate. So, I, and I did not ask him, but we were in we were in uh, South Carolina when this happened, Charleston, South Carolina. I didn't ask him about it. Was he a homosexual or not? But just the thought popped into my head: if he is a homosexual, most of his life, his hope and chance for love and to be free in love was inhibited by a belief I was told that he was evil or bad and I was like I can't live with that i if I'm wrong and there if, if I'm wrong and there is no God or nothing anything else I stole the one chance for a person to fall in love and be free and express that love how they want and I just couldn't live with that anymore I thought that was the I thought that was a sin for me even at
1: two th- percent even if you're 98 percent sure you were right the cost was too high on the other side basically way too high yeah
0: you know, I mean, I, I I was always told in church situations that uh, if I'm wrong, uh, you know, nothing happens. But if you're wrong, you, you, you know, you go to That's hell. Pascal's wager. Uh, yeah, Pascal's okay. wager. There, and uh, but my my point was, if I'm wrong, you're the only life you get in the universe is stolen from you. <laughs> your, some of your joys because I said By what you want to do is wrong. Belief of
1: of yours that doesn't impact right, you. right, yeah. I think so the that's only thing right. I
0: know is that we exist right now. I know that we exist right now. I cannot tell anybody if there's anything after this, and so why would I live my whole life based on this uh, this thing that no one can tell me is real or not? Mm-hmm. All I can do is have. I hope. I hope everybody's redeemed and has a beautiful afterlife, and we're all together and all that stuff. But that it just feels so rotten to steal from that. And you're right. I was told it was a perversion. It was also going back to the like even some of the stuff you talked about with Facebook and the algorithms that they use to polarize us and that you're only getting stuff. I know you're uh, very big into politics and um, Scott, by the way, I've just been nonstop watching like every video I could find of yours lately. I I mean, I I knew very little about you and got excited just about the, you know, the big four and some of your talks and then uh, finding out about the algebra, uh, the, the algebra of happiness. Um, and I just, it was just amazing. So I'm ordering that book. I, I didn't know it existed. I'm sorry, but I ordered, I'm ordered. i ordering that book for my wife and I. We're going to read it together because I think I, just some of the stuff you've been saying about it, I'm really excited about it. Oh, thanks. But, uh, but once again, just going back to the algorithm, it seems like, and I wanted to ask you this question, Are we are we more polarized and hate each other now more than we ever have? It seems like everybody hates each other.
2: Yeah, well, unfortunately, it looks like there's a lot of evidence where, at least on a political spectrum, the data comes back that we think the other side is more stupid, even more stupid than we ever have. And it's such a confluence of things. And it's not just social media. In politics, um, we used to have there was more shared service and shared experiences. To a certain extent, the homogeneity of our society uh, Uh, was that one of the benefits was that people felt they had more of a collective experience. Even our elected officials, a a bunch of them in the 50s and 60s, had served in World War II together or had at least been in the service. So even if you were a Democrat, you had both served and you both understood that love of country. And now so many people come from so many different backgrounds that that love of immigrants, that love of a shared experience, that love of diversity has been totally overrun by uh, people 's fears, I think a lot of it is when the economy is struggling and when the compact between a young generation and a society is that I get to do better than my parents and for the first time in our history a thirty year old 's not doing as well uh, as his parents at the age of thirty it can 't be their fault it can 't be it has to be the system's fault and it 's very easy for i think for demagogues to pop up and start demonizing. Uh, People and the easiest way to demonize people is to put them into groups, and the easiest way to group people is based on stereotypes or ethnicities. Uh, And then we have on top of that this ultimate tearing uh, at the fabric times 10 million called social media, where if I go on to YouTube and I see Al Franken making uh, the the, uh, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos look like an idiot, and I watch the full Three minute because I I, that makes me that 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 tickles a lot of my receptors because I'm I'm a progressive and I don't think a lot of the current secretary of education the algorithm picks up okay this is a liberal Uh, he likes it when when liberal people make conservative people look stupid and so sooner rather than later my entire right rail of recommended videos is progressive people making conservatives look stupid and so I begin to believe that that's the reality that the world is a series of, of uh, a series of issues that conservatives get wrong, and that our job is to be angry at them and make them look stupid. And the exact same thing, I go on Fox News regularly, and I'll watch myself because I'm a narcissist on Fox News, and I see that the algorithm gets confused and starts serving me up conservative comment, yep. where it's a conservative yeah. making a, a progressive look ridiculous. And we all have opportunities to look ridiculous or make the other side look ridiculous. But we have now the world's smartest, most talented people in the world whose profit incentive and whose compensation and compensation drives behavior in America is to send each of us to one team or the other and then to fully engage at a scale, a supernova scale of of discrediting the other side. So there's a lot of factors. But yeah, I think it genuinely is uglier than it's been.
1: I think that that's also ties to the church thing in that if you say the easiest way to do it is skin color, and that's just because it's the most obvious or something, right? Just the just nationalism or something because you can see it, it's right in front of you, and I'd say that's a very vertical axis of that, and then the horizontal one would just be God and Satan. Do you know? It's the same kind of thing. It's just the easiest. The pattern there is just to to polarize with the that's Satan or it's God. Or it's black, or it's white, or it's this, this, or that, and so th- those those maps are, are just playbooks that I think could, are being used over and over, and in deeper and more insidious ways, and it's making us less happy. As in the t- the teenage suicide rate, especially for girls, is way up because of exactly this. You think?
2: Well, there's there's a there's a lot of factors around that, and uh, one of my colleagues uh, here at NYU is a guy named Jonathan Haidt, who's done some fantastic work. And he has a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. But we have an, uh, skyrocketing levels of self-harm and suicide among teens. And I think that is, do you guys have kids? Yep. Three yes. each. Three each. Okay. So, you know, the fact that I'm on your podcast means it does well. You, probably, you both sound like compelling. You're both compelling, like smart people. You obviously went to Clemson. You're both good looking guys. You probably make a good living. And we're famous Christian punk emo uh, guys, by the way.
1: <laughs> that's the one other factor that helped us see the world yeah. a little bit, is we toured in a Christian
2: uh, punk Rock band. For that's 20, like the that's like the, the worst boy world. band ever invented. I know, right? <laughs> but the thing, the thing that can take us off track, and you guys all look like you're in thirties. You're in your thirties, so you're probably healthy. 40s. The yeah. thing that can take us off track faster than anything is something comes off the track with one of our kids. So that's the greatest that is that's the greatest risk to our happiness, and we have these uh, this really serious emerging mental health crisis, and it's a combination of what it looks like is two things, and the first is has nothing to do with social media, and that is concierge parenting or bulldozer parenting, and that is we love our kids, we have more resources, we're told it's all about reinforcing everything and being super nice to them everyone gets a trophy, all the obstacles are cleared out of the way for them. They never face adversity, so they get to college, and we don't like to talk about this at NYU, but now the administrators complain they're no longer in the business of education administration, they're mental health counselors, because people are dropping their kids off at school totally unprepared. They get their heart broken, or they get their first seat, and they freak the heck out. And I, I in my household, I'm the peacemaker. I'm an offensive, aggressive person professionally. When I'm at home, I just want total harmony, my kid comes home with a 79 in math, as he did last week, my 12-year-old. My wife goes ape shit. She says, look around. Do you think 79's built this house? It's no iPad for you. It's no basketball for you. And I mean, just goes after the kid. And both the dog, the physical dog and me leave the room because we just can't handle the yelling. We just can't handle it. And then my kid goes into his room crying and sulking. And my job's to go in there and make a plan and make him feel better about himself. But the thing is, the next morning he wakes up and he's OK. He survives it. The callus grows over the, the wound. The damaged muscle grows back stronger. He makes a connection between doing poorly and bad outcomes and doing well and good outcomes. And she rewards him for those good outcomes And I'd like to think when my kid gets to college or gets his heart broken or finds out that he's not going to be senator or have a fragrance named after him, that he survives. So this concierge bulldozer parenting is not preparing our kids. We have a generation of Princess and the Pea kids being dropped off into the world without the coping skills and the mechanism because they've had people bulldozing every obstacle out of the way for them. We have used so many sanitary wipes on our kids' lives. They don't develop their own immunities. That's the first big factor. The second is social media. And that is if a 15-year-old girl at a very insecure time in her life is not invited to the party, she not only has that shame, and we've all dealt with that shame, but she's in her room alone watching the party play out in real time on Instagram. And typically, we don't like to say boys and girls. One of the things I don't like about the left is we assume that everyone's the same and we're all on a spectrum. And I've always thought that's bullshit. Boys are different than girls, or generally speaking. And boys bully physically and verbally girls bully relationally. And we have put nuclear weapons in their hands with Instagram and with Facebook and with Snap. And that is they can immediately seize, identify a weakness and take that stewed up anger they might have towards someone, ostracize them, get the group to pile in. And within 30 minutes and 40 text messages, someone has been literally ostracized, humiliated. If someone says something stupid, it's on your permanent record and can be circulated everywhere. So. I don't see any reason personally why all social media firms, similar to what we've done with alcohol or tobacco, don't age gate the platforms, you know, out on them Absolutely. And, until they can ensure until they can ensure that YouTube is a safe place where young men are not radicalized until they can ensure that Instagram is not linked to self-cutting among girls. I think the churches have a role in this just as schools do. Uh, I was on the board of my kid's school and I said, you know, part of the reason we let our kids on, we all know it's bad for them, but part of the reason we let them on is we don't want them ostracized. Like my kid was not allowed to play Fortnite, and we've noticed physically that he was losing contact with some of his friends because the way they bonded was talking to each other about Fortnite, and he just wasn't part of that experience. So we let them on, and we also let them on because we want to spend time on our screens on Saturday mornings, so we let them go on their screens. But I think the only way we can really do it is if we ask our churches and our schools to say, guys, step up no social media, no no screens, no, you have got to get rid of this stuff, no wearables. Kids are checking their emails on their wrists in the fourth grade now. And unless our institutions help us, help us carry this out, it's just not going to work. So look, uh, back to the original question, social media has definitely played a part in teen depression. And it's one of the many ways these firms have shown, in my opinion, a lack of regard for the commonwealth and that a lot of the members of their their, their uh, boards and their executive management team lack character and code.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I'm a big fan of that book, The Coddling of the American Mind. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I do believe that he distinguishes social media technology from simply the existence of screens, which I think is interesting. I think they used to say, don't let your kids around screens or by what age, and I think that research is moving the opposite direction, that saying, technological familiarity for the kids great point. a very a positive yet social comparative i think he uses says it calls it social comparative social media i think is the term he uses yeah they get
2: their homework on their ipads now so yeah right. yeah i think that's a great so, point so i like to go as
1: early as i can on all forms of technology and avoid like the plague comparative social media and i take that from that book so i think that's really really interesting um and then you, the uh bulldozer parent is such a better analogy than he- helicopter too. I think that comes from that book, you know. And it's more of a form of interference of 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 human development that has a m- quite a natural way to it. And I think the bu- bulldozer parents are are doing something called what I call interference, which is on the same level as
2: neglect it, and abuse. It happens everywhere. We my school. I was, I dropped my kid off my 12 year old and this 15 year old boys came down the hallway and they're yelling and hitting lockers. And I'm like, Oh, you know, I immediately seized up. Cause if I was a 12 year old boy alone with three 15 year olds in the hallway, it was not going to end well at the high school I went to. And they all came up to my son and they said, Hey buddy. And they high-fived him. Oh, that's, <laughs> I thought that's so nice. And then I thought, but is it, but is it because right. I don't want to say I was bullied, but there were definitely mo- I definitely avoided certain kids in junior high school. I definitely got physically intimidated and got I don't want to call it beat up, but physically I got into physical altercations. And there's certain coping misms. Now, it, it, no one no one should be scarred. No one sh- I'm not I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I think occasionally, you know, showing up in the 10th grade and being trash-canned by the seniors and trying to figure out a way to find allies and alliances and avoid certain People, I don't know that those skills haven't served me well as I've gotten older. And the moment anyone appears to be getting anything resembling bullying, all the, the parents immediately weigh in. And my son said something about you know a couple guys were making fun of him, and and we immediately said, okay, should we be calling the principal? I'm like, probably not. I think he's got to work this out on its own, on his own until we find that there's something that, that is likely he's going to recover from, uh, not recover from, but it's, I'll tell you the world has changed. I don't know where where you guys grew up or went to elementary school or junior high school, but I mean, the world has changed dramatically, probably for, for the, for the, for the better. But I do think there's some externalities and some downside to creating, you know, my kids live in a bubble. I just don't know what's going to happen when they face anything resembling the real world. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: I agree. Growing up, Matt and I grew up in Greer, South Carolina in the eighties and, uh, I can remember play when when I would go out to the playground, we were allowed to like actually, myself and the other boys were actually able to wrestle each other, and it was pretty physical, and there was a lot of touch involved, and the teachers, you know, it's almost like a referee at an NBA game, letting just let them play, you know, when the finals are happening or something like that. Like, it was, I just remember that, and now it doesn't feel that way. I feel like everybody's afraid of touch in a way, and understandably so, I get it, but I, all of this, I, I was is kind of bringing me back to this thought of: is part of this bulldozer parenting or the helicopter parenting? Is it is it because of the the internet? Is it because of WebMD? Is everybody have so much information that you just are going to be scared
2: and influenced to be scared all the time? You know, it's a it's a fair question. It's not my domain expertise. I don't know what has brought us to this point. I just don't know. I, I don't know how we how we got here or what the, the social norms are that we're just so over involved in our kids lives and so protective of them. And, you know, and it does to a certain extent seem to be backfiring. I, I don't know how we got here. Do you guys, well, I'm just curious what role you guys think the church and religion has had in all this.
1: Well, the church's role, the way I'm analyzing it today, at least is been just causing a lot of, of, of interference, Uh, with natural development and question-asking and curiosity and creativity. I think those things are inhibited by authority systems and nervous parents in the same way, and they disarm people from being able to discover things and solve their own problems in unique ways, basically. And that's without being prescriptive for what one ought to believe, but just according to whatever it is that they would naturally do. I think that that is, uh, you know, that creativity... Is seems to be the answer to many of these things, and it seems like that's the thing that's often limited or crushed by what I would call bad authority. Hmm. I, I would think, as content
0: creators, one thing that churches and I would say maybe even pastors have realized I, I worked at two mega churches, I, I sing, so I was a worship leader at two mega churches, one in Seattle that collapsed, and one that I left in uh, South Carolina. And one of the things that I realized was, <clears throat> and especially even like studying other pastors, is that the I Pastors have learned that uh, almost like a self-help sermon is really valuable to people. That uh, Sermons a lot of times, especially in the evangelical world, let's stick with just evangelicals, is more Tony Robbins than anything, you know, uh, hard theology or anything like that. It's more about you, life is hard, but if you keep believing, here's three ways that you can improve tomorrow or your family or something like that. Um, and I think one of the things that it leads people to is, is that self-help thing is that it's imp- I think it's influencing people that life is hard and bad and you have to have God and hope. And if you just do these steps that life will get better, but it doesn't actually teach you real skills. Like you said, like maybe you have to go through bullying. Like it, it, it almost influences you in a way to stay away from that stuff because, you know, here, stay with the church. We're the good guys. If you, you know, we're going to, we're going to help you. We're going to feed you. We're going to do all this idea there would do things. And then the, the truth ends up being that you just are separated from the, from Real education. I I agree with you. Like my daughters, I have two daughters and one son, and we try to move slowly as we can when there's bullying because half the time they're they're all elementary school age. Half the time, if I really ask them questions, they were doing a little something too anyway. (laughs) So if I find out more information, I realize my kids were doing were, were a little bit involved in this bullying thing, and the way they're receiving it, how how emotional are they getting, and why? And wait a minute, you're crying here, but are you really that upset or do you just feel embarrassed? Like, are you really hurt or are you just embarrassed? Because embarrassment is a different thing. It it sucks. No one wants to be embarrassed, but that isn't the end all be all. And so I think some of that ends up happening. But yeah, I I think the church influences us to, I think it's just a little too self-help. I think everybody is coddled in a way of always saying that their life is so hard. And I feel like we live in the greatest possible time ever. And it feels like there's never been more problems. Like, even like and I know uh and i I'm not sure if you want to get into politics that much or who you're voting for or whatever, I know you're progressive and you, and you've talked about that, and people people can find out whatever they want you you know you're not hidden whatsoever, but I do wonder one of the things I wanted to ask you, I am just fascinated. By this, by Trump and what is happening now, we're in the the debates, and I hear constantly because my family is all very conservative South Carolinians, right? And they are all they, you know, Bernie is a socialist that will destroy America, uh, you know, and the things that they say about the other candidates are just what Trump would say about them. I mean, almost word for word. What you know, what would a South Carolinian conservative say about Elizabeth Warren? You know, they're going like to say something derogatory at all. Right. I know. Yeah. No, uh, they're going to say exactly the, something about her not being an uh, American Indian. Like that's the That's the extent of it. They don't know anything about her policies or anything. And so uh, I'm wondering with this the election coming, it is going to be I mean, it's going to be the greatest sports show almost ever. It's, it'll be more it'll be crazier than the Super Bowl and all that stuff. But I do wonder, like with, with politics, that's one of the things I think the church really does. Even if it doesn't say vote for Trump, it definitely picks some issues and then says, "Well, that." And it leads you to go, "Well, that's Trump's issue for you, right?" You know, like a, a abortion is Trump. Democrats want everybody to have abortions, and Trump doesn't want anybody to. So, who do you vote for? If you really do care, you know, if if you think it's murder or whatever, wherever you stand, that it it lends you, it pushes you that way. And so, I think it is polarizing that way. The church is moving us that way, but I don't know is it don't we live in the best time ever? And it, why is it the, feel like the worst time ever? That's a giant question. Sorry. So uh,
2: first, uh, the, the best time ever, it's the way what I say to my kids, when I say my kids, I mean, my students, um, it's never been easier to be a billionaire. It's never been harder to be a millionaire. And that is, if you're fortunate enough to be born into the information economy, into the slipstream of this tech economy, you get the right credentialing, the right college degree, the right training, the right skills, you can be making an extraordinary living by the time you're 30. Uh, So that's the good news. And our economy is growing. But what we have is, in a lot of ways, what we have is enormous prosperity, but we don't have a lot of progress. And that is that prosperity, unfortunately, has been clumped around a smaller and smaller group of people and income inequality has kind of become inequality has become a, a a big issue. I would argue that we're moving towards an ugly place around the casting of our society. And that is when I, I went to public schools all the way through graduate school, public elementary, junior, junior high, high school, UCLA, Cal grad, public schools all the way through. And I was exposed, uh, my high school, my junior high school was a, a third black, a third Latino and 40% white. And I want to be clear, it wasn't like a Hallmark channel. When I, we first got to the seventh grade, I came from this all white elementary school. And then I went to a school that was integrated. We hated each other. We hated each other. The, the the all the white guys, we all thought the Mexicans were dangerous. We'd heard about one guy stabbing another, and all the blacks were violent. And we, we used to have black against white softball games, and I'm not proud of that. And I'm even less proud that the administrators let it happen. Yeah. And we were just scared to death of each other and didn't like each other. And that's the bad news, is the good news is something wonderful happened. And that is by the time eighth, ninth grade, and we got to high school, rolled around, we were all getting along. And my two best friends, my first best friend was a kid who was a Mormon kid, which is about as wide as you can be. It didn't drink, and I got, didn't drink, didn't, you know, where everyone was experimenting with marijuana, I didn't because I hung around Brett, really into sports, wonderful family. I was being raised by a single mother, so my mom wasn't home a lot because she had to work. They used to have me over on their family nights on Monday nights, super into sports, clean living. And he decided he was going to go to Stanford, and he gave me a sense of aspiration because I'm like, if Brett can go to Stanford, then I can go to a good school. My other close friend was a kid named Ronnie Drake. was a black kid who was middle linebacker for the University Warriors, our football team. And I remember in the eleventh grade, him getting his neck hurt. And this kid in eleventh grade, six foot two, one ninety, just like a physical, just an incredible athlete. And after the game, him sobbing. I'm like, "It's not a big deal. You're going to be fine." He's like, "Next week is when the scouts are here. And if I don't get a if I don't get a scholarship to Linfield, which was this college in Oregon, I'm not going to college." My parents can't afford to send me to college. I don't do, I haven't done well that well, done that well academically. And the fact that I had exposure to different groups just created a sense of empathy and aspiration that has, that really helped shaped my life. And I also had access to, to the, one of the greatest institutions in, the, in America and through the generosity of the University of, of, of the California taxpayers and the Regents of UC got a free education from the University of California and Berkeley. So this empathy, this casting and free education, and not casting, the integration and um, um, subsidized state education just changed my life. The reason I'm here with you guys is not because I'm remarkably talented. You know, I, I think I'm very talented. I'm a, mod- I'm, I'm a top one percenter even, but that puts me in a room of 75 million people, the population of Germany. The reason I'm here with you is because America gave people empathy and aspirations by mixing us and two, gave, us, gave me at least free education. Not, all of Both of those things are going away. Berkeley is now $58,000 a year to go to graduate school there. My high school is 90% Latino now because all the white kids and their parents immediately took them out because they were scared of that transition process when we didn't get along and we were fighting each other. And I worry that this casting has resulted in the top 30 universities in America, where there's more kids from the top 1% of income-earning households than the bottom 60%, is creating a caste system where the big tech companies and the companies that have extraordinary shareholder value largely recruit ki- uh, kids from wealthy households. Who recruits from the top universities? The best companies in the world. So who gets to, who gets to enjoy the remarkable, the remarkable prosperity? Basically, who gets to be the innovators? It's simple. The kids are rich people. And I worry that I'm part of the problem that public education has lost the script, that we see ourselves as luxury brands, no longer as public servants. I'm worried that taking our kids out of elements and uncomfortable situations where they get to mix with kids from other demographic groups is making us less empathetic. So yeah, it's never been better. It's never been a better world if you have the right credentialing and you're in the right zip code. But I think it's a less better world for the American middle class and the unremarkables of which I was one of them.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. You do a lot of talking about spouse choice. Can we spend a little time there? I think that was very interesting.
2: Yeah. So uh, I, I wrote a book, Algebra of Happiness, and it was largely because uh, the way I write books is I take my most popular class. I do a video on it. I did a video uh, on the four the the platforms, got a bunch of views, wrote a book, and then I do a class called The Algebra of Happiness where I try and distill best practices around happiness and my observations into a series of equations and then did a video, got two million views, wrote a book, Algebra of Happiness. And one of the things is I ask the kids, what's the most important decision you'll make? And because I teach second year MBAs, average age 27, 28, they say stuff like the industry you go into, or the economic cycle, or what, or you know, what business you plan to be in, or where you live. Most important decision you'll make, hands down, in terms of your happiness. Yeah, in terms of what's in your control, is who you decide to partner with the rest of your life, Uh, specifically your spouse, even more so than your spouse, who you decide to have kids with. Because once you have kids, you're in someone's life for kind of call it a quarter century. And then the research is then, well, okay, well, how do you pick the right spouse? And it typically comes down to three things. It's like, so affection slash sex, physical attraction, that's important. Those things are important. Identifies the relationship as singular. I find that young people spend about 80% of their decision capital on that kind of one thing. Who am I into? Who do I find attractive? Who am I drawn to physically on a on a kind of a, a primal level? The second is values. And I'm sure you guys talk about this a lot. Where are we going to live? What is the mm-hmm. role religion is going to play in our life? I I don't think I could have married someone incredibly religious. It just doesn't foot to my values. I don't think I could marry someone that didn't have a lot of respect for my atheism. And I, I we want to be involved in our parents' lives, but we don't want to live close to them. I, th- I think that gets in the way of a lot of relationships. How many kids do you want? Uh, you know, there's th- young people very rarely say, okay, what are the values? What's a deal killer? What isn't? And then the number one source of divorce people say, I say to the kids, what could really take you off track? What could cause financial ruin out of business school? And they say, oh, illness. The reality is, illness is is a function of the agent. There's very few people in their 20s and 30s that get really sick. It doesn't happen a lot. The thing that takes kids or young adults off track, especially financially and professionally, is divorce. And so how do you avoid divorce? The number one cause of divorce, and again, I say, what's the number one cause of divorce? And everyone guesses that it's infidelity. It's not. The number one cause of marital accident divorce is money, specifically a different set of value systems around money. So, I would say to young people, you have to have an open-on conversation around what economic weight class do we expect to be in? What is your approach to spending money? Where do you expect to be in terms of how much we spend? And who is responsible for maintaining that level of spend? <laughs> yeah, I agree.
1: That's probably the number one thing that threatens my marriage because I married a just punk rock. She, I met her when she was 19, and she threw her Wendy's trash in a parking lot and i thought wow what a what a punk different alternative type of Lady, this is, and fell in love with her, and now we've got three kids, and she wants these seven hundred dollar car seats and all this stuff, and would go to private <laughs> school with the kids if we could afford. Like, what happened? So, yeah. So, and I still want to stay the same way I was financially, so I can feel that big time. So they'll change the the fact that ch- people are dynamic and change on you seems to be one of those problems. Some bodies. of the
2: change you're describing though is just the uh, very healthy maternal kin- instincts kicking in, right? She, yeah, it sounds yeah, like sure. it sounds like she wants you know wants the best for her kids. The the. But it's an enormous source of strain. And in a capitalist society, you're constantly having people more successful thrust in your face. And you also have, you know, a business class thrust in your face. And then there's first Mm -hmm. class. A capitalist society is constantly motivating you to make more money and showing you amazing things, Mm -hmm. no matter how much money you have. Wouldn't it be great to have that, you know, Fender guitar? And then I'm sure there's an even better Fender guitar. I mean, there's just... So much incredible stuff out there and services that it's 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 aspirational, it's motivating, but it's also humiliating and depressing uh, mm-hmm. over time and a lot of self-shame that if you think of yourself as a, a talented person and you grow up and you get some level of success, you're like, well, I want more. But the number one source of, of marital agita and divorce is finances. So I would say, okay, look, I know all of you will work out the first part. You all are very focused on finding people you're attracted to. Uh, swipe left, swipe right, an open and honest conversation around kind of the key points around values. And most of them, especially if they're religious, at some point, if they do kind of that, I don't know, that homework that, you know, the rabbi or the priest does with you before you get married and they ask you some basic questions. But the thing people don't like to talk about is money when they get married. It just feels crass. It feels weird. And And the tension starts immediately. How much money are we going to spend on our wedding? and one person says mm-hmm. 3000 and one says 300,000 or what you don't love me you and this is the best All day of right. our lives uh, so it's it, you know picking a mate i have friends who have amazing careers super successful and they love their spouse but they don't feel like they have a partner in their spouse and it means the great stuff in their life burns a little less bright and the and the hard times are especially hard and then i have other friends who aren't as successful from an exterior standpoint but have a real partnership with their spouse. Laugh with their spouse. They're in it together. The other spouse is constantly, you know the spouse doesn't keep score. They, they really try and they're a team trying to help each other out. And I find those people generally are, are happier than the ones that are more successful but don't have a real partner in their spouse. So most important decision a young person will make is not the job you pick. It's who you decide to partner with the rest of your life, specifically who you decide to have kids with.
1: It's almost the canvas of which the other items of happiness appear on. And you've talked about,
0: uh, I wanted to bounce off that too, with marriage. When you are young, how... uh, it, should it be something that is on your mind immediately? Because when you're younger, you've talked a little bit about risk-taking, and, uh, and I think maybe we even take less risks now, especially like even you were talking about some of the stats with like men moving back in with their families and being less successful than their uh, – people are scared to maybe take more risks, even though maybe we do have a seemingly good economy. We're taking less risk. Should you, when you're younger and single, be focused on trying to get that mate for the happiness, or should you be focused on getting plenty of money so you don't have to worry about it when you're
2: married? Uh, So there's a lot in there. And and these decisions are so personal and there's no one size fits all. But in terms of economic growth, partnerships work better. Um, Married households accrete wealth much faster than single households because being single is expensive. It involves memberships to Equinox and nice cars and drinking, which gets in the way of your professional life. You know, dating is expensive, not only economically, but in terms of your ability to focus. Whereas when people get married, typically one partner is the more responsible one and says, no, we're saving for a house. Two incomes are much more powerful than one or dividing and conquering is a great way to create a, a small corporation where All right, you're responsible for X, Y, and Z. I'm responsible for A, B, and C. So typically how the wealthiest households are are not necessarily dual income, but have two people pulling for each other. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So from a pure economic standpoint, you want to find a partner or a mate and get on with building wealth and get out of that very expensive, time-consuming, you know, f- fraught with friction point of of um, of being single. Now, in terms of you know taking taking risks, uh, people. Rom- I'm an entrepreneur, and people romanticize entrepreneurship and they think it's that I have additional skills that that made me. No way I could survive in a big company because I'm just too talented. The reality is I don't have that. It's a function of deficiencies of talent that made me an entrepreneur. I couldn't survive in a big company. I worked at Morgan Stanley. I'm a fundamentally a pretty insecure person, and every time a group of people went into a conference room, I thought they're talking about me. They're talking about me, <laughs> uh, and I'm be like, Do they know how hard I'm working? Are they planning to fire me? I I, I, did, I just didn't know what the hell was going on. And I was too insecure to live in a world of certainty. So I've always had to work for companies where I had access to all the information. I was politically stupid. I didn't make the right allies. I was offensive. I said stupid things. I couldn't put up. There's a certain amount of BS that comes with with corporations. You have to be patient. You have to understand that if you're seeking justice, you're not going to find it in the corporate world. You are going to work for people who aren't as talented as you that make more money there's just injustice everywhere. But over time, over time, the greatest vehicle for wealth creation in the history of modern business is the U.S. corporation. And if you can put up with that BS and require skill and you can create create cohorts and create strong relationships and recognize you're not always going to be the first one to be promoted, you get rich slowly working for a corporation. I did not have those skills. So what I would tell people, kids come to my office hours and they say, I got a job at Amazon, Google, I'm thinking about starting my own business. I'm like, don't be stupid. Go to Amazon. Don't be stupid. Mm-hmm. And they like, what are you talking about? You're an entrepreneur. I'm like, yeah, entrepreneur means you got to be comfortable signing the front of checks, not the back of checks. It means you have to ask your in laws for money, borrow money that they, they likely will never get back. That's what it means to be an entrepreneur. And it means taking a negative commission on the business. In other words, putting more money into the business instead of taking it out. Until you get some scale, or the company goes out of business. It, entrepreneurship is vastly overestimated. Over, uh, and then when you look at an economy where we've had a concentration of power, generally in every industry, and I don't care if it's syndicated research or search engines or pesticides, the top one or two companies own more and more market share, and it makes it harder and harder for startups to form. So while we'd like to believe, given what we see in C- on CNBC and the Wall Street Journal, that, that we live in an era of innovation, we live in an era of non-innovation. There are mm-hmm. half as many companies being formed each day as there were during the Carter administration. Jimmy Carter was the innovation president. There were more; only seven percent of companies are less than a year old. It used to be fifteen percent. Why? Try and start a search engine. Try and start a tech hardware company. You guys are in this. Try and start a media company. You guys. My sense is they came back to me. I, I get a decent number of requests from me on podcasts, and like, I always say diligence. They're like, oh yeah, these guys are huge. You guys are probably doing great. And it is hard. Media is so (laughs) hard right now because we have two companies soaking up two thirds of every digital dollar. Sixty seven cents on the dollar goes to Facebook or Google online. And there are millions of companies fighting over the other 33 cents. And next year, they're going to be fighting over 31 cents because we desperately need to oxygenate the the marketplace by breaking these big guys up. And every, almost every marketplace has turned into a monopoly or a duopoly. So circling back to your question, I actually don't think it's a great time to start a business. And we'd all like to think, oh, it's a great time. Start a business. We're living in an era of innovation. It also creates this false narrative that if you're not a billionaire, by the time you're 30, you've done something wrong. Because we all know somebody who went to work for Google. Good for them. We all see on Instagram someone who bought Facebook stock and is now on a yacht. Good for them. But the reality is, the middle class has not had a wage increase in 30 years. The reality is, it is really hard. Work has gotten harder and harder for the 90% of us that don't have access to that information economy. So w- there's this illusion of prosperity. There's very little progress, I think, economically. And not only is it bad on a, on a, on a level. I mean, I, I love ratios. When I got out of use, when I got out of a, Business school, my tuition was $1,000 a year at Berkeley. I was offered a job in consulting for 100,000 a year, 100 to one ratio salary tuition. Now salary is 60,000 at at Haas, at Berkeley. The average job, uh, the average salary out of business school is 140,000, which is a lot of money, but it's two to one. It's gone from 101 to two to one. The average house in San Francisco when I got out of business school was 280,000. I was making 100,000, that's ratio of 2.8. Now they make 140,000 the average house in san francisco costs 1.4 million so it's gone from 2.8 to 1 to 10 to 1 people wonder why they want to uh, they want to vote for a socialist we had socialism growing up in my generation we called it we called it capitalism i got free education why wouldn't they want their education yeah. for free and the way they want their education yeah. for free is we they want us to elect somebody that'll cancel their debt we transfer a trillion dollars a year which is more money than the defense budget of the united states or europe from young people such as you guys and kids to the wealthiest generation in the history of mankind, senior citizens. That's socialism on steroids. Mm-hmm. We have a president <laughs> that's that's implemented tariffs. Tariffs are the definition of socialism. Who's putting pressure on companies to put their headquarters back in Minneapolis. That's a, We have the worst type of socialism right now. We have cronyism. And that is picking national champions and putting pressure on companies we are incredibly socialist. It's just a question of nomenclature. I don't personally. It's not that Bernie Sanders' policies scare me. The idea of him getting nominated scares me. I think Donald Trump. Now we're venturing into politics, even though you guys didn't ask. I think his assault on our institutions. I think his fake, uh, uh, fake religion or spirituality is just is grotesque. I think the North American North Atlantic Treaty is one of the uh, most important treaties in the history of mankind. I think he's tearing at it. I think the whistle call that brings out the worst in all of us in terms of bigotry and misogyny is frightening. And I just don't like the man. I think he's a a rich kid who has lost money, who has expectant children, and is a mean, weird, and and what's unforgivable about him in my viewpoint, I just think he's plain stupid. Uh, So I am hoping, I don't want to vote for a candidate that matches my ideology. I just want the candidate that will win. And and the number of times in a sitting president has been booted out when there's no recession, it's happened zero times, so I see the only way we're going to get there is with a moderate. Because you need to turn out on the Democratic side, and I would imagine a lot of your listeners are Republican. But the only way a Democrat's going to unseat a Republican in a strong economy or a decent economy is to turn out the base. And quite frankly, I think Trump's doing that for us. I think the base is horrified by Trump. So it's about it's all about the moderates, and moderates aren't wokesters. They're not worried about Bloomberg's alleged racism. They're not worried about Mayor Pete or you know, they're, not, they're, not, they're about the economy. They're about, you know, they're about, okay, I want moderate values. There's got to be some room in the middle here. They're about bipartisanship. They're about getting legislation passed. So anyways, I'm supporting, and I've been very open about this, I'm supporting Mayor Bloomberg because I think he's, he can bring the shock and awe to the campaign that's needed to get an incumbent president out. The reason I'm supporting Mayor Bloomberg, I have 60 billion reasons full stop. And that's he has the wealth. Unfortunately, politics, I don't like it. It's come down to money. That's it, money. And he's got the money to bring the shock and awe to get uh, who I see as a very dangerous individual out of office. If I had to bet, if Bernie Sanders wins, a sociopath beats a uh, uh, a socialist seven days a week and twice on Sunday, I think Trump will take 38 states. So I'm very much trying to trying to find a moderate uh, that can that can take on, that can take on Trump.
1: Do you think is it possible at all that that, uh, Bob Iger would run? They stepped down yesterday, and maybe he would run.
2: So I don't know if you saw. I don't know if we follow each other on Twitter, but I saw that announcement. I'm like, okay, this is a guy. Whoever sees a company that has people drawing Dumbo and Kylo Ren frame by frame manages the every detail of Galaxy's Edge. I don't know if you have sons, but at some point mm-hmm. they'll force you to go to Galaxy's Edge. That's not the kind of guy that rushes a resignation. Something is going on there. That that I resignation agree. was so rushed. I mean, I don't get it. Something is going on there. And I immediately thought, well, maybe it's something really bad. Maybe he's not not well. And he's
1: That's what I thought too.
2: Well he's been saying lately that he was going to retire
1: in the next two years. And he's been doing a lot of press lately and he wrote his book and He's trying to wind down some things, but this thing seems rushed in a different way. Weird. I thought, oh, Bloomberg
2: Iger, or he's going to run in two thousand and twenty-four. What do you think? I just felt weird. Bloomberg
1: Iger would be so cool. I think that would. I mean, I would support Bob Iger for sure. And I mean, I'm really scared of him because I think, man, what a power. I think of him as already kind of the most powerful person because I know he. Is controlling the narratives that our children get. I think of it that way, and I have so much respect for the for his ability to manage at all levels. There, it's just fascinating. I just can't get over what he is capable of, but it makes me a little bit nervous. But on the other hand, maybe, that would be awesome. I mean, I think that would be the type of person that you could really. I, I think that's reasonable. He's already has that much influence over all of our lives all the time. We already he already has that much influence of our lives, so let him do this too. Is the way I would look at that.
2: Well, you guys are much more in touch with the South than I am. What are your projections? Who, what happens uh, with the uh, primary uh, in South Carolina? What happens? Well,
1: I thought they said that Biden was doing better than than Sanders there, and and I think that makes it sense because the Southerners don't really like people from Vermont. Period. Yeah, they don't. They don't think they don't like Yankees in that way. And just right. enough to take the edge off, and they certainly are less like socialists. And Joe Biden is just everybody's grandpa in exactly the way that people like in South Carolina, and more so, he's closer to that. I think so. I, I think I, I think unfortunately, it's kind of uh,
0: you, you have several people. Like for example, the other billionaire state is Stayer. I think is the other billionaire in there. Steyer. Steyer. He he. I think he's put a lot of money in South Carolina specifically. So I'm I'm thinking that the group is going to pull votes from everybody. At a, I think Sanders might win. I, I I actually think Sanders is going to win the nomination, only because if what's weird about Sanders is he kind of almost on the opposite side resembles Trump. Kind of has like you know a, a mm-hmm. fan base, mm-hmm. and he's saying crazy things, and he you know in a, you know you know I mean it's weird. Like I you you like Sanders? I like him. I really do. I I I think he would. He's a, he's a nice guy. I think there's certain things nobody understands socialism i know just in uh research you you talked about uh happiness the top 7 happiest com- uh, countries had something like socialism in common 7 I mean, of the 10 happiest there.
2: nations on earth are socialist
0: and and i was like whoa what a crazy stat that's so that's so cool maybe i should think about this more and i know that even there there's some socialist aspects to america obviously as well but i i don't know he they're going to trump's going to portray him as a complete crazy uh R- Russian communist from the you know the Cold War or something like that right like i mean he and and i do think that he could lose bloomberg the problem with bloomberg the only thing i've seen is i feel like the the two debates he's done kind of poorly i wish i, I wish he would have done better with that i think yeah. i think you're right in the idea of a billionaire that can win that might could actually help like hey i can beat trump but i just don't i don't know but i i, I think i think sanders is going to get it and i just don't know if there's going to be that enough of a percentage for him to win and beat out Trump.
2: I love that you guys talk about politics because my book agent, my producer, everybody that has any sense always says the same thing to me. Don't talk about politics because basically (laughs) you're, if you talk about politics, 48% will agree and love you. 48% will disagree and hate you regardless of what you say. And 4% will take it as a reasoned argument. I mean, there's just no room in the middle anymore. And, it's a uh, I think it's great that you guys do do have the courage to talk about politics because I don't know who distributes your podcast but the first thing they tell you is like let's just not talk about politics yeah, stay Throwing away from anger.
1: well we, we we do a certain thing here which is it's just it's something like we just uh explore everything in a dumb way like we don't that's all it really is here. It's called really broadcast is.
2: television. That's not unique.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, we we are uh, maybe you could say brave or courageous, but we we think people get the most out of us being wrong and not really knowing what we're talking about, but being willing to explore it is really the the mo here. Is we're
2: I, I, I have don't, some I don't questions think. for you guys. You're both church going. You're both you're you're religious people, spiritual people, religious well, people.
1: We're trying to get a grip on that. We started this podcast. While we were like working at ch- and leading at evangelical churches, and now we've almost landed in the rationality camp. I mean, that's yeah. the that's the direction. Of,
2: so right? you're so fallen not... Catholics? Is that what they call it? I no, don't... we
1: weren't. Ca- we were evangelicals. You're uh, evangelicals. Evangelicals. We Grew up in the South. Are you crazy? Yeah.
2: Isn't every? I might see my stereotype, and this is no better than any. Is it every evangelical is just blindly pro Trump?
1: Well, they they, they 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 largely are, but we're not evangelical so. anymore. You know, and so we still hold. We still hold a lot of uh, faith. I still care a lot about Jesus and what he is and what I take from him as a character, and we still have faith even in him and in God, but we're not part of evangelicals. We've left it, and a lot of our podcast audience has come with us because we just asked questions. We just had authenticity and transparency as a baseline value, and we finally got open enough to ask the hard questions and see where they lead. And so we're just going that direction, so, and the audience seems to really appreciate the fact that we'll just get into whatever it is and ask, "Be curious," and then see what happens. So it's not like nobody expects us to know anything. That's, we, we're, we don't even believe what we said two years ago on this podcast. I mean, you know, we're, we're the opposite of you could pull up everything about our past, and it'll be the opposite of everything we're saying today. That's the point. Hopefully it will be again in the future.
2: And how, yeah, is your, I, how have your brothers and sisters from, from Evangel- Evangelicals, your, your cohort, how have they accepted or not accepted this? Are they like, you know, you, you've, you've left the flock, it sounds like, a little bit, or you veered from it. Have they been, you know, come back, rejoin us, or, or we're disappointed, or have they been really angry? What's been their, your, their response to your sort of leaving the flock, if you will?
0: Well, the, the, the biggest the, the biggest pushback I would say in the beginning was we tried we thought we have to be authentic and vulnerable. Like we just it, it. Christianity is just filled with hiddenness, and that's where yeah. then all of a sudden you find out the pastor sleeping with everybody at the church. And you're like, oh wait a minute, I thought he was a good guy, or whatever. Right. So we we tried to be ourselves, and the biggest pushback, which was hilarious, is that we cussed. We'd say fuck, and everybody'd write, oh my gosh, you cussed. You how could you be a Christian? And then we just kept going, <laughs> We're like we, uh, we just like okay, you just got to keep going, be yourself, and eventually that that goes away. That goes away. I think a lot of people now are frustrated. Or, or, or would say. They think that we have left the flock and they would like more conversations about Christianity. But I would rather bring up Christianity in a real way, like how we're talking with you. Like I, like when I was growing up in church, I was told if I talked to an atheist, they are going to mess me up and send me to hell. And that NYU colleges are dangerous because they fill your mind with all this bullshit. And now I can go, Yo, wait, wait a minute. That's, that's mostly exciting.
2: true. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you that's mostly but that's true. They, but you're saying that. But we're not evil. <laughs> our heart's in the right place. We get it wrong, yeah. but our heart's in the right. Right. Place. That's what I'm saying. You're you're saying that though, and
0: I can trust what you're saying. You're saying that because you actually care, and you would try to tell the truth, not based on an agenda to get people to not go there to learn something. That's what I I mean. Uh, w- one of the things you said in one of your talks was about kids and and social media and how they they can't understand it. And you even you even mentioned that here, and I was like, "Whoa, that's really crazy." You were talking about your son. And how he liked likes when he did like a cartwheel or something like yeah. that. And my daughter, my daughter's 10 and she wants to do videos and she's got her idea for videos and stuff. And I, when I was listening, to that, I was like, wait a minute, how much do I want her to think about likes and wanting it? Cause what she did one video and she did, that's what she cared about. And, I, and so I'm, because of you, that's what I'm saying. This is why this is like a whole circle here because of a person that I'm open to, that is an atheist and believes lots of different things than me. I'm able to realize, wait a minute, maybe I should sit down and have a conversation. Do you like making videos or do you like the likes and the attention? Like I can have that conversation with my daughter. Like you opened my mind to that. And I was like, I never thought about having that, that conversation with her. I, I can respect my, my 10 year old. I can respect her and love her enough to go, what do you actually like here? And I'm even finding out what's really fun about the videos is I'm helping her make them. So we're actually doing something here. So I'm using the apps and I'm using the technology to do something with my daughter that's kind of fun. I thought would be annoying and stupid. I'm sitting. We're sitting here splicing her video together and cutting out the boring parts. And she's going, well, that's boring. And I'm like, yeah, you know, and so we're having a good time. And I was like, oh, wait, so there's the value. The value is with my daughter, I'm spending really quality time creating a YouTube video. And how can I diminish anything about... Posting the YouTube video. Everything about the YouTube video is amazing except for the actual uh, response that she needs to get. The response shouldn't matter to her at all, but she just thinks
1: it does.
2: The feedback loop, the, 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 uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm desperate for affirmation. I don't know if you guys track metrics on your podcast, but it's like I just, I'm just addicted to feedback around downloads on my you know, views on my YouTube, thumbs up, thumbs down. I mean, all that shit. I'm so desperate for affirmation yet yet strangely contemptuous of others' opinions. It's like the worst combination (laughs) in the Mm -hmm, world. mm -hmm. You know what, guys, there is so much more that unites us and separates us. We are all podcasters. We're all male. We all have kids. We're all trying to figure it out. You guys have to come to New York and roll with Prof G. You gotta come here. Do you guys drink? Oh, yeah. yeah, Oh, well, then you're definitely coming to New York. It's the world's best place for working, uh, creativity, and also... Drinking—that sounds awful to say on a podcast.
1: <laughs> we we got on a health kick recently and have spent spent some time not Get drinking. But it'd be nice. It'd be nice to come to New York and and, and go out and and do something no. with you. Nothing I
2: worse for your pretty mental pretty health awesome. and physical health kicks. Nothing worse. Yeah,
1: we, we uh, will be in New York. We're in New York usually two or three times a year playing rock concerts, so we can do it.
2: You guys are so cool. You literally. <laughs> you're, I, I'm gonna roll with you guys. I want to go. Do you, what do you do? You, are these like? Is this like Christian rock? What is it?
1: I mean, it started that way. I make fun of it that way, but I mean, it's not, that's not really what it is anymore. But we mm-hmm. just we accept every bad label people want to give us, and then we keep going to build our own environment. That's really all we do. Yeah. So we measure other people thinking we're silly and say that must be the right direction unless we continue to just to head that direction. That's kind of the idea.
0: Well, Scott, I know we need to let you go, but I, I wanted to say too. So you got you have your two books, uh, the Algebra of Happiness, and the Four, which I didn't. We didn't even really get into, which is one of the reasons why even just the stuff that you've written is just fascinating. And then I've been really listening to your podcast, Pivot. Yeah, thank you um, for saying that. And and
2: so yeah, so that's really great. Anything else you want to promote or or, or talk about? The
1: Professor G is your new show, right?
2: Yeah, the Prof G podcast yeah. on Westwood One, uh, Pivot with Kara Swisher. Who's, you know, arguably the most iconic and well respected tech journalist. So yeah, yeah to resist is futile. I'm I am literally infecting everyone with my content. So anyways, guys, good luck with your good luck with your stuff. Congrats on your success. Thank, Thank you very you much, so much. Scott, thanks for joining us today. This was fabulous. Take care. Bye now. Okay.
1: Well, thanks to Scott for coming on here. I hear some music fading up underneath me, so I think I better go ahead and address it. Uh, you guys are listening to a song called Trilogy. And it's a brand new single from a band that, can you guess yet? Anybody recognize it? That's right. Silent Planet. The single is the kickoff to the band's upcoming headlining tour with currents, Invent, Animate, and Grey Haven. The tour is going all over the US throughout March and February. Or February and March, however you you know, organize your months there. So you can head over to those band's pages and find out the ticket info. Everybody knows that. You can find ticket info anywhere. Just Google Silent Planet tour dates or your city. I bet they're coming. There's a ton more music coming from them this year. And so you got to make sure to also follow their Spotify. I know that you know how to find that. Go to Spotify. Type in Silent P, and it'll probably almost be coming up by the time you get there. Or Apple Music, which is a little harder to navigate, in my opinion. But you want to follow these bands if you like them just so you don't miss anything. And for now, just go spend a little bit more time without me talking over it and listen to Trilogy. Go see him on tour. in my head it's always red the static in my head it's always red the static in my All right, well, Scott's cool. For a little oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> for
0: a dim uh <laughs> what did, what would my dad call an uh, atheist uh progressive? Lib-turd. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, a Lib turd probably or something like that. That's isn't that so great? that's what I'm saying. That's why I'm telling you, the church it I, I understand that there's good stuff about it, but you cannot negate the bad stuff about it there was a time in my life where I would have thought I couldn't learn from Scott and his brain's unreal. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like he, he thought he is thoughtfully and oftentimes probably even in his life painstakingly learned lessons and thought about things right. and has a family and he cares. And he, he, you know, he's talking, I mean, he's talking about the value. He's learned the actual specifics and data on marriage. All I ever was told is you don't have sex before, and then when you you get married, because God,
1: that's God's plan. Any other problems? That's you, that's between you and God. But I'll pray about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, it's not like that's what I'm saying. Like he he
0: has. If you, that's what he even said at the end. I, oftentimes, there probably isn't as much difference in people than you think, but. If you you got to give people a chance to learn, a lot of his probably ideas and principles line up ex, ex, exactly with the Bible or what it was taught, but in a way that is actually data driven and well thought out and not agenda driven. Which that's you know I wish we'd have more time to talk about tech and you know his book about Facebook. I mean some of the stuff that I, I encourage our listeners to go find him Scott Galloway wherever because he just talks about social media and the big four, um, Apple and Facebook and Amazon and Google. And we didn't even get to this. And this is one of the questions I wanted to ask him because I thought it was just phenomenal. In one of his talks, he says, Google is the most incredible super being ever created. Mm-hmm. And some of the questions that are being asked on to Google now have never been asked on Earth before. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I wanted to find out more about that. What is that like? But we have created something that is in a sense godlike that answers all our questions hey what does it mean if your if your baby is coughing like that you can type that in and god in a way answers mm-hmm. you need to do this this and this or this is what it could mean here's the treat you know here's the you know what, what let me prescribe this uh, routine to do or whatever it might be and i was like oh, this is so what a i mean going into talking about ai and and what what is happening with the with the internet and with everything? It just I was like, man, I wish we could have talked about that more because that's very true, and we didn't even get there. So I don't know if we'll ever get to have him back. We just had a NYU
1: professor on the show, and it was just it was great. So <laughs> that is funny. Well, let's tell them about the BC <laughs> Club then. If you got some names of people, you won't believe this, but after all these years, people are still yeah. joining. So. That's, I mean, it, we, yeah, we've been I doing this know. podcast since
0: 1988, 89. <laughs> we were one of the first podcasters ever, and
1: uh, here we are, still. Yes, and people still getting around to joining now, which I find yep. as, you know, uh, moving. Ken Ulrich, Jonathan O'Brien, Shiloh Warner, Jake Ross, Kyle Fogarty, Tyler Hoagland. Thanks for joining, Tyler. Sean Williamson, Sean Willison, and Spencer King. Appreciate these, that, guys.
0: And I've been I've been really thinking a lot about the BC Club and why people have listened to us for all these years and all this stuff. And I, and I I really do appreciate it. And I think one of the things, like we were even talking with Scott, that people know there is more. And you've been told so much stuff in your life, and there has been content created and agendas being presented that have told you maybe who you should be and what you should be. Speaking of, which is our the BC Con is going to be titled something like that, basically, like who would you know. Who are you where did you where did you come from is according to the world and and what does the world say about you i'm you know it'll be more concise than that, but I really do think that people deep down inside know there's more, and that if you could just give yourself a little bit of rope. To listen more and hear people out and see what they're coming, you would you'd realize you're not that different, and maybe they have valuable ideas, even if you do have differences. You always will have difference with somebody. That doesn't mean they're your enemy or they're evil. I tweeted this on uh, at Toby Toby Joy Joy on my Twitter account uh, that the church told me that uh, sinners w- were evil and they're my enemy. Right? That's what I was told that that, that they're my enemy now, mm-hmm. and now that's what our politics is as well. A a, yeah. a a Republican and Democrat are enemies. They they are not. Uh, it gets away from Americans. They they are in fact thinking the other side is trying to destroy America. And I mean, I'm like, wait a minute. You you know this isn't true. You know that a Democrat or a Republican isn't really trying to destroy America. Now they might be misinformed and they might be wrong about their a certain belief or whatever. But the goal isn't to destroy or hurt. I don't think. And if it is, then let's figure that out but i mean we got to have better conversation that is why i think the bc club is so valuable it's folks that are open to thinking there is something more and of course everything we say isn't right i mean i'm sure i mean they talk so much shit about me it's unbelievable and i'm here still standing because it's probably done a little bit in love and i like that so man i'm all jacked up from that from that scott man i i got my my if i, if I did my i'm gonna check my pulse right now i bet it's unbelievable that was a very what? fun Fun we,
1: you well toby the whole episode was good from the beginning you came and uh you had the idea for what the episode was going to be today and then you came with statistics and numbers that just made my me. heart so happy and you knew stuff and then it, we merged into a conversation with another smart person that likes numbers and we you held it together the, the whole time and, and you if did have, pro- most of the talking on the episode today and it was really great if you'd have told me in
0: 1992 that i would be talking about uh Statistics on something called the internet.
1: Yeah, when somebody like that. Yeah, I remember in
0: 1992 I was sitting in my geometry class and couldn't even pass it. (laughs) And if you had told me it's statistics, geometry statistics, right? Isn't that the same? Isn't that what that is? All right, we'll see you all later. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I'm pretty sure geometry is statistics. That's all the same. It's like the same (laughs) thing, right?
1: You know, the number stuff.
0: I mean, it's it's math.
2: The it cost won't come back again
0: oh, This world don't stop people from changing They come and go
2: It feels right but you just realize